Today we're talking about Revelation 2 and 3, the messages to the seven churches, accepting that we're not really going to touch Laodicea because that is the subject of the entire lecture tomorrow. When we introduced the class, we talked about how in Revelation 1.1, we know that the prophecies of Revelation begin about in the time of John. And by the context of the prophecies themselves, we can perceive that they extend to the time of the second coming. I'm using that first lecture as an introduction to just suggest to you that the seven messages of the seven churches are themselves like this. That they begin in the time of John, the apostle, and they proceed through the Christian age. In one hour, there's no chance we can get through the two chapters in the kind of detail that you ought to study them. So I tell you, you ought to assign yourself to study them. Because there are not so many places in the Bible where after giving a revelation, you find something like this. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the... Do you see that that gives some priority in the Bible to this particular part of Revelation? That you ought to give it special attention. That you ought to listen to it especially. So the names, you don't need to memorize them, but they are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. No, but you can find it in your Bible in Revelation 2 and 3. Let me just go through them. Ephesus. To nearly, well, to most of these churches, God gives a commendation and an implied or a plain rebuke. Something he appreciates and something he doesn't appreciate so much about the church. You ought to find it instructive for you as a teacher in the future or as a Sabbath school teacher to notice which he gives first. You know what he typically gives first? He gives the commendation first. He typically warms up with a commendation. Then he gives a rebuke. Then he ends with a conditional promise that implies that you can recover yourself out of the snare you've fallen into. Let me say this thought again because it describes all seven churches. When Christ is going to give a rebuke through his messengers... He prefaces that rebuke with a commendation. Then he follows up the rebuke with a way that the church can redeem itself. That is, though you have fallen, yet to those that overcome, does that imply that you can overcome even if you have these problems? Those with the problems can overcome. That's more profound than I can make it. So I'm just going to tell you, if you study the books in education and Ellen White's writings, you'll find that same principle described there. That commendation warms the heart for rebuke, and that if, if you rebuke someone, give them a way to redeem themselves so they don't feel like they'll be continually under your condemnation. If you feel like you're underneath someone's condemnation, it puts distance between you and them. But if you feel like you can restore the relationship, the distance is brought back together. So what do sins do? They separate us. Then what do the promises to the overcomers do? 
They provide a means whereby, at least in our perspective, that separation can be healed. Okay, let's move to Ephesus in particular. Revelation chapter 2, and we're looking in verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works. Maybe I ought to point out to you that that is an introduction to many of the churches. Look, for example, at verse 13, what he says to Pergama. He says, I know your works. Look up at verse 9, what he says to Smyrna. He says, I know your works. Look at verse 19, what he says to Thyatira. He says, I know your works. Does Jesus know our works? It's the first thing he says to us. If there's something that ought to be on our mind, the first thing that that might prevent us from many falls is to realize that Jesus knows our works. On the other hand, when we think about that fact that he knows our works, we typically think about it in the negative sense. He knows our bad works. But if I could say this as simply as I understand it, Jesus is not a negative person. While he notices our bad works, it does not distract him or blind him to our works of charity, our prayers, our efforts to forward his cause. He notices the things we do for him, the sins that we resist in his name. He knows our works. Illustrated in this verse... I know your works and your labor and your patience. What was the early Christian church like? The early Christian church was a working church. In fact, we find in the gospel, or it's not in the gospel, it's in Paul's writings in Colossians, that the gospel was preached in one generation to every creature under heaven. What commendation does Christ give to the early church? They took missions seriously. They went about the work they were given to do. Jesus said... Go you into all the world, teaching all nations. And what did they do? They went to all the world, teaching all nations. He says, I know your patience and how you cannot bear them that are evil. It describes how they're related to those over them and under them. Those over them were persecuting them wrongly. And how did they handle that? They bore with it patiently. But maybe it had an impact on their relation to those doing wrong inside their own body. Is it right for the church to discipline its members? It's right. And it's part of the commendation to Ephesus that they had strong church discipline. He said, you cannot bear them that are evil. It would be better for our church today if we could not bear those that were evil. On the other hand, there is a correlation between the commendation in this verse and the rebuke that comes just after. But finishing verse 2, And you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. Theologically, this is such an important part of the verse. If you were to deal, or in the future, when we face Roman Catholicism, and Protestants claim that they go by the Bible only. Catholicism claims that it goes by a combination of tradition and the Bible. 
And when the two butt heads in the field of debate, there is an argument that is very embarrassing to Protestantism. It goes like this. You say you believe in the Bible only. How do you know which books belong in the Bible? Do you find a prophet somewhere in the Bible tells you which books belong in the Bible? Why do you acknowledge these books and reject others? Check your history, Protestants. It's because of the Council of Nicaea. It's church tradition. It's because of the writings of the fathers. Tradition you hold over the Bible in the very fact that you accept the book that's in your lap and reject other parts. You're inconsistent. Do you understand the argument? I want you to know the argument is bogus on the basis of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 says, to the first church age, 200 years before the Council of Nicaea, that while the false prophets and true apostles were alive, what did the early church do? It tested them and found those that were liars to be liars. That is, the testing of true and false prophets was not conducted after their death, but during their lifetime. They were compared to other writings. They were judged by those writings and accepted or rejected on the basis of those writings. What were the first writings in the entire Scripture? The Ten Commandments. I mean, in particular, the Ten Commandments, and who were they written by? God's own finger. Once that written revelation was given, every subsequent revelation was judged empirically on the basis of that first revelation. And the New Testament was not a change in the pattern. The revelations of the New Testament were judged by their comparison with the old. So that at no time, at no time has the church been dependent on a man or a group of men to determine what does and does not belong in the Bible. The Bible has been judged by itself. And the Roman argument is entirely washed up. Is there anyone who wishes I would say that again? Let me, let me just say it back to you plainly. Why do I accept this Bible as it is written? I accept it when I'm young because it was handed to me by the church. But how did the church come to that conclusion originally? It was by comparing new revelations to old revelations. You might say that I, maybe I should, for my own purposes, go and recheck their work. And maybe it would be wise for you to know why that you reject the Apocrypha. They're not in harmony with the old revelations. But the church is not dependent on the Council of Nicaea. According to Revelation chapter 2, the first church age judged which writings were Scripture and which weren't. If I wanted to develop that argument further, I would go, for example, to 2 Peter 3, where you find Peter using the word Scripture to refer to the writings of Paul to show you that the apostles themselves 
under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, identified which books belong and do not belong as inspired in what we call the canon. But at the rate we're going, we're never going to make it through Revelation 2 and 3. So I'm going to leave this and say, if you want more help with this, ask me at some other time outside of class, and I'll be happy to try again. Moving on to verse 3. And you have borne and have patience. Now, does that word patience look familiar to you? Why it was in verse 2. And here it is again in verse 3. It's because the first Christian church was an especially persecuted church. You might have heard of the ten persecutions. They began in what we call the church of Ephesus. It was a church that suffered... How many of the apostles were condemned to death? Everyone that didn't kill himself. Now, they weren't, all con- they, didn't all, they weren't all successfully killed, but they were all condemned. Moving to verse... We need to move... Well, verse 3, we need to finish it, I'm sorry. And for my name's sake you have labored. Does that sound familiar also? These things are repeated. And you have not fainted. As soon as you read that have not fainted, you have an idea about the spiritual life of the early Christian church. Namely, that they were a Christian Christian church. Because how is it that a man avoids fainting in the Bible? Hebrews 12 indicates it's this way. By considering Jesus. By considering the contradiction of sinners against Him, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. What was it about the early Christian church that kept them from fainting? Very apparently, they had a church that was considering Jesus compared to later churches at least. Apparently, there is a passage that they did not consider well enough. In Romans 11, we're told, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God toward them which fell severity but toward the goodness if thou continue in his goodness let me I've just quoted it to you let me take it apart a little bit Romans 11 indicates that there are two qualities of Jesus you need in particular to consider in your life to have a spiritual healthy life one of them is his severity particularly severity as exercised towards those that fall what's the other one It's His mercy. The word there is goodness. The goodness of God, His mercy, which is towards you. What should you think of in relation to yourself? His mercy. What should you think about Him in relation to those that fall? His justice. The church of Ephesus fell on the side of considering His justice overmuch and His mercy not sufficiently. The result was they could not bear those that were evil, but also that they lost their first love. It ought to be particularly interesting to you because the Laodicean church falls off the same fence but on the other side. Overmuch considering his mercy and not sufficiently considering his... I don't want to say harshness, it sounds negative. His severity, to quote the passage... Towards them which fall. 
verse 5 says something. It says, Remember, therefore, from whence you are fallen, and repent, and do the first works. I skipped verse 4. But how are they to to rise from their fall? Do the what? Now notice what it says, what their fall was. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. So the fall was to leave love. And what is the rise? To do first works. The fall was that they lost their love and the recovery is that they do the first works. There's some instruction in that. First of all, it tells you something about our first works. What are our first works like? They're works of love. Second of all, what is love like? It's like your first works. What does the Bible say? Love not in word, but in deed and in truth. Here is a church that has fallen from its first love, and what she's commanded to do is to do her first works. There is a threat in verse 5 that if you will not repent, I will come unto thee and remove your candlestick out of his place. Now, where are the candlesticks in Revelation 1 and 2? They're there in the sanctuary and Jesus is in the midst of them. You know, Jesus, Jesus isn't going to move. If the church won't stay with him, the church is going to have to move. Verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. If you go to church history, you'll find various opinions about the Nicolaitans. The one that sounds most probable to me is that they were an antinomian group. But I want to show you how much you can know from Scripture alone about the, anti, about the Nicolaitans. First of all, how does Jesus feel about their works? Jesus hates their works. Well, what kind of works does Jesus hate? The Bible testifies that he loves righteousness and hates iniquity or lawlessness, to be particular. Jesus hates their sins. What did the early church have going for him? They could not bear those that were evil. The Nicolaitans were a class that had evil deeds. That's interesting because you find the Nicolaitans again. I'm looking for them in just a moment. Look at verse 15. Speaking to the church of Pergamos, so you have also them that hold the, what does it say? Doctrine. Doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Can you tell Jesus does not like much about the Nicolaitans? What does he hate in the church of Ephesus? He hates their deeds. What does he hate in the church of Pergamos? Their teachings. Very apparently, there's a connection between the two. 
They have hateful teachings that lead to hateful works. That is, they have teachings that lead to sinful works. That's close enough to the antinomian perspective on history. If I could say it as simply as I understand, the early church was not buying into antinomianism, but there were antinomian teachers. Now you might be asking, what does antinomian mean? Namas, it's the Greek word for law. Antinomian means against law. That is, people who deny that the law is binding. You get an idea that those that were against law were not put up with during the church of Ephesus, but by the time you get to Pergamos, they were accepted by everyone except Jesus. I shouldn't say everyone, but the church comparatively was accepting their doctrine by the time you get to Pergamos. So that comparing the two, we find that there was a fall from the acknowledgement of the authority of the law between Ephesus and Pergamos. When you move to chapter to verse 8, you come to the second church, Smyrna. Smyrna is notable, as is Philadelphia, for being the only two churches that Jesus does not rebuke. That is, the church of Smyrna was entirely a commendable church. They paralleled a red horse in Revelation 6. They suffer persecution. Jesus says to them, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So when was the church undergoing its worst persecution? Its most serious persecution was under the emperor Diocletian. You can just remember the first syllable of his name is Di, and it will help you remember. Diocletian, and he made an effort to exterminate the Christian religion between the years of 303 and 313. Three hundred three and three thirteen A.D. Those years were predicted in a prophecy in this passage. This is where we find the first time prophecy in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter two, and we're looking at verse ten. Fear none of those things which you will suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. It's just interesting Roman history. Well, you'll get this later in the church, early Christian church, but look at verse 9 for something else. I know your works and your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Here's what I learned from Revelation 2 verse 9. Say? Here's what I learned. That Satan's church is professedly Christian. That I don't look for Satan's church in the spiritualistic haunts or in Thailand or India. 
what does Satan's synagogue call itself? Jews. And at least when the church was being persecuted, that was recognized. Does it make sense to us that already Satan would have a church in the time of the persecuted Christians? It does, doesn't it? Because in Acts 20 we find that what did Paul say? The mystery of iniquity doth already work. I think that was 2 Thessalonians 2. I think Acts 20 said that from among you will arise. Yeah. Moving on to verse 12. I'm going to summarize Pergamos and Thyatira by talking about the primary metaphors used in them. Pergamos and Thyatira together describe that age that extends from about 313 A.D. until about the time of the Reformation. And the, there is a phase shift in the middle of that time that is findable in history if you understand these messages. What do they have in common? They both have a false teacher. In Pergamos, the false teacher is called Balaam. And they both have a government. In the church of Pergamos, the government is represented by Balak. In Thyatira, the false teacher is Jezebel. But a little bit different than the Jezebel of the Bible, this Jezebel claims to have revelations from God. We're told that she is the prophetess Jezebel. Incidentally, this is the only place in the New Testament where you find the Bible using the word teach in connection with a woman in reference to women teaching. I probably shouldn't have said that. I already repent of it. I'm going forward. <laughs> Repenting precludes me doing that. Jezebel, while he's not named, the implied king that goes with him is Ahab. The stories of Balaam and Jezebel have some parallels, as do these prophecies. But in the passage here in Revelation 2, they have more parallels than contrast. In both cases it says that they teach the church to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. In other words, they both have the same message. Jezebel and Balaam are doing the same thing. Now, eating food sacrificed to idols is such an interesting topic in the New Testament because you could make a case for it being wicked and a case for it being benign in the New Testament. What does Paul say about it in one place? A devil, I mean, an idol is nothing. And when you get food from the shambles, don't ask if they offered it to idols. Just eat it. 
turn this thing over and you find the authoritative church in Jerusalem saying, don't eat things sacrificed to idols. And then Paul saying as much as he can harmonize with that, the reason not to do that is for the sake of others that might be offended or hurt by this practice. Can I just say my conclusion for you to evaluate? Food offered to idols is a gray area. And how did Satan introduce idolatry into the Christian church? According to the prophecy of Revelation 2, it wasn't by sermon in favor of idolatry. History plays out the truthfulness that Satan worked through a series of almost imperceptible, gradual descents into idolatry. Maybe someday you'll get a chance to study that. Maybe you're wondering, how could icons end up in the church and have it be imperceptibly slow? But it began this way. They began to honor the martyrs by going to their graves. And then they would adore the graves as part of honoring the martyrs. And then that was dangerous. And so they thought without going, maybe you could just do it in church. You could do it with a picture of the martyrs. And they were adoring the pictures in memory of the martyrs. And it never got beyond that theologically, but practically it became plain idolatry in the course of a couple hundred years. How does Satan introduce his evil plans into the church? It's through gray areas. And if you'll open your eyes to what he's doing today, you will learn to recognize when someone says, what's wrong with this? That the very fact that it seems like there's something wrong with it, but it's hard to define, is evidence that you're playing with a satanic delusion. What does Satan try to do? Bring an issue over issues that are very hard to define one way or the other. What is your safety? Stay away. Stay away from the gray. But there's something more. To eat food offered to idols, but there's something else. It says there, he taught them to commit fornication. On a more shallow note, you could think of James 4... Verses 1 to 4. Know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with Christ? Whosoever therefore would be a friend of the world is the enemy of Christ? And um, now let's look at it. James chapter 4. James chapter 4 and looking at verse 4. It says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Spiritual adultery in this verse is very, very simply friendship with the world. But on a corporate level, Throughout the prophecies of Ezekiel and Hosea and Isaiah, spiritual adultery is the union of church and state. And even in the book of Revelation, later in the same book, 
you find that Babylon is condemned because she has committed fornication with the kings of the earth. Spiritual fornication is the union of church and state. Now let me make my... This is what Balaam and Jezebel have in common. They taught the union of church and state, and they brought in idolatry through gray areas. But what is the difference between them? It was their method of corrupting, or their position from which they corrupted the church. Balaam, at the behest of Balak. That is, Balaam was a teacher serving the king to corrupt the church. In history, it's just not hard to identify Constantine, the clergy he promoted, the church that suffered. Did you follow what I just said? Who was Balaam? A prophet that served Balak to corrupt the church. Was there a king who exercised authority over the clergy by influence to lead them to corrupt Christianity? That's Constantine. That's just the simple summary of history. But Jezebel's relation to the king was quite different. Jezebel controlled the state. Where Balaam served the state, Jezebel controlled the state. If I could say the difference between Pergamos and Thyatira, in Pergamos, the beast and the woman are walking side by side. In Thyatira, the woman hops on the back of the beast. I can't draw it. I'm not going to try. So, would you put a year between the two of them? It's not so hard. Let me repeat this again, and they'll be done with this. Pergamum and Thyatira, these two church ages, were similar in doctrine, they were similar in corruptions. But a major difference was that in the time of Pergamos, there was a battle going on inside the church, and there were false teachers trying to corrupt it. When you come to Thyatira, the evil has vanquished the good, and the evil is in charge of the church. Let's just look a little bit more at what it says about Pergamon and Thyatira. Revelation chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. Does Satan have a seat? He has a, geologic, he has a geographical location that is the center of his efforts to control the world. And in the time of Pergamos, it became the center of the Christian church. Now, that's not so hard for us to identify just by going to history. What city became the center of the Christian church in the time of Constantine? It was Rome. You hold... 
I know your works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is, and how you holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Listen, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. What is the difference primarily between Smyrna and Pergamos? In Smyrna, the, per- the persecution is coming from outside the church. But where is it coming from in Pergamos? It's coming from the church. What does Antipas mean? Against the fathers. Antipas. Against the fathers. That's what Antipas means. It's a metaphorical name. Who was being persecuted in the, un, after the time of Constantine? Those who were, were resisting the usurpation of authority by the Bishop of Rome. You know those by a certain name as Adventists. We call them Waldensians. When the heat became too great in the valleys, excuse me, in the, well, I call them the valleys, it's the plains around Rome, Piedmont area, what did they do? They went to the mountains. That is, the people we think of as the men of the alpine valleys, didn't, they weren't from there from the days of the apostles. They went there mostly in the ninth century. They began as the faithful men around Rome that resisted Roman influence. That is, when, when the bishop of Rome was claiming the authority of like a god on earth, it's not like everyone around there said, yeah, we agree. In fact, it's an interesting part of history that the area of Milan, which is near Rome, was a diocese that historically resisted the authority of Rome long after that authority had been recognized as far away as England and as far away as parts of the Middle East. I'm just going too slow. Look at verse 20. Or verse 19. We need to notice verse 19. Speaking to Thyatira, this is, you might say, the church under the reign of the papacy. I know your works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. Works twice in the same verse and then a comment on it. And the last to be more than the first. The ninth century is long after the sixth century. There were still faithful men around Rome even after the papacy gained its supremacy. They were there. But what God said about the works of Thyatira is that as the church age of Thyatira was closing, there would be a brighter, more vibrant church than when it opened. It opened in 538. When did it close? I'm suggesting to you that that is the time of Wycliffe and the pre-Reformation. Notice what it says in verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants. Does God expect His church 
to regulate those that can and cannot teach the members? Do you see it plainly taught in the message of Thyatira that the church is responsible for forbidding the teaching of false teachers? What did he have against Thyatira? That Jezebel was allowed to teach and seduce. What did Paul say to Timothy? He said their mouth must be stopped. When you look in verse 21, you see Jesus talking about Jezebel kind of in a second-person way, as if he doesn't recognize the papal church as his church. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed with them that commit adultery with her, into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds." And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Here the papacy was condemned long before the end of earth's history. Was she given a certain amount of time? She was given time to repent. She didn't repent. But why wasn't she destroyed immediately? It's been God's standard plan once a nation is doomed to still give them time to fill up their cup of iniquity. He did it with the Amorites. He said they're not to be destroyed until the fourth generation. And with the papacy, it's after the final persecution. Look down to verse 28. It says to the overcomers, like a blessing above what would normally be expected, I will give him the morning star. I'd just like you to know that many commentators have understood this to be a reference to John Wycliffe. What is his name in popular Protestant history? The morning star of the Reformation. The man who began what became the rising of light in the midst of a very dark church history. Yet if you study this, this phrase, morning star, in the Bible, it looks very much like Jesus. But those aren't overly contradictory. Because you might remember our last lectures that Jesus identifies very closely with his messengers. And those that receive his messengers receive him, And those that reject his messengers reject him. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the introduction of the Protestant Reformation. But it's so interesting how it gets moving. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Is the name Protestant a good name? It's a good name. But just about the same time it became the name of the Protestant movement, the movement lost the characteristics that earned it that's name. That wasn't English, but you understood what I meant. 
Verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. What does Jesus require of Sardis? That's exactly it. To hold fast to the truth that he has given them. To not let it go. What condemnation falls on the Protestant churches? They have not even held fast to the truth that was given to them. And they've let it go. I'm looking for a verse I want to show you. Just one moment. I'm looking for the passage that says that I'll put on you no other burden. Okay, look back at chapter 224. Thank you. This is during the time prior to the Reformation. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, that's the doctrine of Jezebel, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put no other burden upon you, but that which you have hold fast till I come. Shortly and simply, we should be charitable regarding the errors that were held during the Middle Ages. Just to maintain the most basic doctrines was a difficult challenge for the church. And did God require of them high and significant development? He required of them simply that they hold to the basics. But what did he require of Sardis? that she move forward, that she hold fast what God had given her and develop. There just is not time to finish, so I'll close by saying about Revelation 3, 4, and 5, that we'll study that again later when we get to the sixth seal. And regarding Philadelphia, where it says that no man openeth, excuse me, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth, that if you're an Adventist heritage, we'll study that today. How many of you are not an Adventist heritage? So for the three of you not in Adventist heritage, at some point you might want to ask me if you're not there for that lecture about that. We're talking about today. And you are dismissed.